In the fall of 2015, 35 of us traveled from Country Club Christian Church to the Holy Land. We spent one day on that visit to that beautiful land in the city of Capernaum, in the village, I should say, of, of Capernaum. It was a fascinating part of our tour. We, we gathered around a, an ancient uh, um, olive press from the time of Jesus, where we learned that this large stone uh, uh, would be rolled around the press, and the olives would be pressed, and the olive oil would then be, be gathered and created. We went to another part of the, of the village where we stood next to uh, the ruins of a first-century home, where we learned the different aspects of family life in Jesus' time, where the family would gather for their meal, for their daytime activities, where different rooms were for sleeping. In fact, we learned that when a young man or would get married, he wouldn't go off and build his own house or, or find another place to live, as it were. Rather, he would bring his new bride there into his home until the time when he would be able to afford his own home and build his own place. It was just fascinating to learn all these various aspects of what life was like in the first century and to really be more or less in a place where we know Jesus lived and walked. Later that day, we learned that just to the north of town, there was a Roman imperial highway that crossed parallel through the little village. Think about what that means. In Jesus' time, even though this village never had more than 1,500 people, in Jesus' time, he would have encountered just a few steps away from wherever he was living, people from all over the world. People would come by there from India, as far east as India, from as far south as Ethiopia, from as far west as Spain. Through this crossroads, there was also one not too far away that was north and south. So here, Jesus would have encountered people from everywhere, cult different cultures, a variety of religions, all sorts of viewpoints. And it's there at that place in that fascinating crossroads where Jesus stands and proclaims the kingdom of God has come near. Repent. Turn around. Begin again. Matthew places the beginning of, of Jesus' ministry here to demonstrate that, that Jesus' words are not simply for those in Israel, but they're given for the entire world. In fact, Capernaum was well known then as being a place where Jews and Gentiles worked together in harmony, where people from all over the world found themselves doing business. It was a, a fascinating place. Isaiah, yes, Isaiah said in his, in, in his prophecy 700 years before that something new would happen in, in the lands between Naphtali and Zebulun, which happens to be Capernaum. But even more than that, here's Jesus at the crossroads of the known world, influenced by all these different voices and religions from all around. He stands in the middle of all of that, giving this inclusive invitation for the kingdom of God has come. It is at hand. It's time for you, in the light of God, to turn around, to begin to begin again. This was good news for everyone. But sometimes this news gets misinterpreted. Sometimes we hear the word repent and we think, oh, I'm supposed to feel bad about something. I'm supposed to stop doing some terrible thing. I should feel guilty about my past. And now I can try to get again. If I'll repent, if I'll repent in the right way and say the right words in the right order, then I can get into heaven. In fact, when I was a kid growing up, I heard this a lot in the churches that I attended as, as a child. I sort of thought of God as this 
angry version of Santa Claus. You know, uh, this, this, it was, of course, it was a male kind of image that I had. Then it was sort of this finger-pointing God. Any of you uh, co comic fans, do you know who Louis Black is? Some of you know who he is. I kind of had that vision of, of who God was when I was a kid. Somebody who'd shake his finger at you and say, listen, listen, I'm making a list. I'm checking it twice. I'm going to find out who's naughty and nice. And as a kid, I used to be afraid, thinking that, boy, if I don't repent in time, I could end up in a hot place where I'm going to be punished forever. Of course, I was sharing that with my mom the other day, and she said, I don't think you were too afraid. You got in lots of trouble when you were a kid. <laughs> but still, though, repentance is not about remorse or sorrow or guilt. It's not about feeling really bad and hoping that somehow God will forgive you. No, no. It's not about trying to get off the naughty list and onto the nice list. It is about reorienting your life in the light of God. It is about redirecting your life in a way that you know will bring hope and, and, and wholeness into your world. It's about reorienting your life towards something worthwhile and, and then doing whatever it is that needs to be done to get after that very idea. And, and you need to know, and I, I think maybe this, this idea for Jesus uh, sprouted while he was in Capernaum. This was not original to Jesus. This idea of repentance, of reorientation, of letting the light guide your steps was true in ancient Hebrew culture and true in ancient Greek culture. Who's to say that Jesus didn't find this idea while he was sitting nearby in the crossroads of the world in the little village of Capernaum? Repentance, then, is about walking in the light. It's, it's, not, it's not about worry, being, being guilty. It's not about feeling bad. It's about saying, whatever has been will be, but now I will move forward into my new life. When the light shines in the darkness, the way is clear. But here's a catch. When the light shines, if you've been in a dark room, suddenly there are shadows. In the darkness, there's no shadow. But when the light comes on, the shadows are revealed. Metaphorically, the same thing's true in our lives. When the light comes on, the shadow side of who we are is revealed. That can be unpleasant. That can be something that might cause you to run over and turn the light back off very quickly. Because oftentimes our shadow side is not the side we want anyone to see. But as Isaiah's ancient word indicates, Jesus came not to shine the light on the parts of ourselves that we're embarrassed by, but to rather illumine our lives, our loves, our hopes, our dreams. To illumine the darkness, yes. And will shadows be revealed? Yes. But when the light before us has been set and the path is clear, those shadows, think about how this works are always behind us. They don't block the way when we move forward into wherever the light is guiding us, into a life that is full of grace, that is immersed in love and is encouraged by mercy. This light gives us new life. So if we're going to, if we're going to let that light shine, if we're going to live our lives oriented in a way that allows our lives to be rich and full and, and alive, then we're going to have to risk the revelation of the shadows. It means we'll have to be willing to walk in a new way. Here's a way to illustrate this. George Hamilton Combs, do you remember that name? He's our founding pastor. The chapel across the street was built in 1960 and named after, after Dr. Combs, who helped to found this church back in 1920. But before that, a few years before that, in the 19-teens, he had a, a, a light-revealing moment, a reorientation a repentance, if you will, not of some sin, but of seeing the world in a new way. 
World War I was raging, and Dr. Combs at that time was the pastor at Independence Boulevard Christian Church up here in the Northeast area, where we still go every Monday night and feed the hungry. Back in those days, they had 3,300 members. Dr. Combs was considered one of the finest preachers in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ. More than that, he was considered one of the finest preachers in the United States of America, period. He was invited to come and, and give commencement addresses at major universities all around the country. He's a brilliant leader, a, a loving pastor, a kind and gracious man. And in the middle of that war, he wanted to serve. But he was in his early 50s. And in his own autobiography, he says, I was frail and weak and not suitable for service. But instead, he volunteered. He signed up through the YMCA, yes, through the YMCA, and was given permission by the president of the, of the YMCA, the president of the YMCA for the entire country, and said, if you'd like to preach while you're over there, please do. Do visits, provide pastoral care, whatever it is. He really became a sort of chaplain. And so he went to France, and there he did. He did preach, and he preached often. Sometimes he said he, could, he, could, he was preaching so close to the battlefront that he could hear the sounds as he was delivering his sermons. And he says in his autobiography that something happened inside of him. Something happened to his preaching. He said he would stand up to preach and there would be a hundred men perhaps. And a week later, there might only be 65 because they'd given their lives for their country the week after he preached. He said, you know, Preaching in that setting changes you. No longer are you concerned about denominational differences, about how to baptize this or how to do that or how to say this or what the order of worship ought to be. Preaching in that setting really changes the way you approach things. No longer do sectarian ideals, that's his phrase, no longer do sectarian ideals make that big of a difference because he was preaching to men who might be dead the next day or even the next hour. He brought to them a word of grace and a word of hope. It's there that his theology of God's eternal and undying love for everyone was born. He said, I can no longer preach a theology of hell and punishment because I've already been there. In the trenches, where there still was blood staining the dirt, the light came on. And he realized so much of what we do in the church is so trivial, so simple, so, so silly. We've got to leave that all behind. He came back a year later to Independence Boulevard. He was, he was hopeful that the church would, would catch this same spark, that they would get inspired by, by, by what, what he had discovered there too. And he writes, and you can read this in his autobiography, he says he came back to the same squabbles, the same fights, the same arguments, the same stuff. And as try as he might, he just couldn't get the church to move in a new way. And so he did what he needed to do. He retired. I think he was 54 years old. He retired and he moved way out south. I think it was about 85th and Mission. <laughs> he planted a garden, and he says in his autobiography, he just enjoyed planting a garden and watching God, God's nature at work. Then in 1920, a group of 74 women, men, and children began meeting over here in Brookside in a second-story building not too far from where Charlie Hooper's bar is today. Not at Charlie Hooper's, but nearby. And they said, you know, we want more than just a Sunday school. We want a church. And so they called Dr. Combs. And they said, Dr. Combs, we know that you're retired now. We'd like to start a, a church in the Country Club uh, Homes District. Would you please come and be our pastor? He said to them, you know, I've, I've studied your neighborhood. And this is, again, this is in his book. I've studied your neighborhood. And people there care more about golf than they do about God. He said, people there care more about polo. Do you can you imagine playing polo out here? 
He said, people that care more about polo than they do about God. I've heard people say that that country club homes neighborhood would be a terrible place to start a church. So, of course, I will say to you, yes, I'll be your pastor. That was 1920. In 1923, the building you're sitting in right now was completed. By then, the 74 members had grown to 300. Those 300 gave all they could to build this magnificent sanctuary. $500,000 it cost. Imagine how much money that would be today for just that small group of 300. 24 years later, there would be well over 2,000, almost 3,000 members in this church that Dr. Combs began and found it with those 74. But that experience that he had in France, it shaped what this church became. It shaped the theology and the understanding of ministry that this congregation has been practicing now for nearly 100 years. Back, back in the 1920s, this was a huge controversy. It seems so simple now, but it was a huge controversy then. In our denomination, this congregation was infamous for welcoming anyone and everyone. We didn't check all these five folks who just joined this morning. We, we didn't check to see if they'd been baptized in the right way. We didn't check to see if they'd been immersed or sprinkled or any of that kind of stuff. We asked them, do they trust in God? That theology began here a hundred years ago. In the 1930s, this church invited women to be in leadership and, in, and to share that with men in a class called the 50-50 class where men and women shared together. We were probably the first church in our denomination to do such a thing. That was considered almost a heresy back in the day. We assume it's true now. But this church started that. In the 60s, we were active in the civil rights movement. In the 60s, across the street over there in that Hamilton Combs Chapel, a Roman Catholic priest was invited to preach, to deliver a gospel sermon. We think, we can't prove it, but we believe that that's the first time a Roman Catholic priest preached in a Protestant church in America in the 1960s. doesn't seem like a big deal, but back then people were shocked that a Protestant church would welcome Catholic, let alone a priest, into their building. Move forward on and on into all the many things we've done. The way this church has, has gone into the Northeast and has welcomed anyone and everyone there. You may remember that we were, we were the congregation that welcomed the first family to come to the United States under President Obama's uh, Syrian refugee surge to bring as many folks as possible into this free land. We didn't orchestrate that. We didn't make that happen. We didn't get involved in politics to jump in there somehow. We just were doing it. This little group of ladies was over there, and they happened to be the ones who were called from Country Club Christian Church to make the beds, to stock the shelves, to hug this family from Syria. When the request came for us to do a same-gender wedding, our board, our elders and deacons, our congregation, frankly, said, yes, of course. That's who we are. We've always been a church that was willing and ready to welcome anyone and everyone. And that vision for ministry was born in the hellhole of war, where the light came on, where Dr. Combs realized God doesn't care about these petty differences. God wants to bring grace and love to everyone. It was a repentance of sort. It was a reorientation of his life and his ministry toward God. And in so doing, this great church was born. Now, now there are some barriers to allowing this type of of transformative change to, to take place. Perhaps the single largest one is fear. Fear holds back a church. It holds back a family. It holds back person. Too often fear forces us into, into me- mediocrity. You know, someone has said that, that the great danger the church faces is not the loss of faith, but the acceptance of a mediocre one. And there's great truth there. The great problem of the church is that too often we want to just keep everybody happy. Let's just keep everything 
just, oh, just as is. Frankly, it's a recipe for disaster. Uh, may I tell you a secret? I've never met a pastor who at some point in their ministry has not been overwhelmed by fear. And I'm not talking about nervousness. I, I'm nervous every Sunday, trust me. Three times on a Sunday morning, I'm very nervous. If it's a funeral or a wedding, I'm very nervous. It's just it, whatever. It's who I am. It's, but I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about fear. I'm talking about a fear of being irrelevant, a fear of, of, of the unknown, a fear of really never saying or doing anything that matters to anybody about any time, anywhere. Do you know that by the fifth year after ordination, 50% or more of pastors have quit the ministry? By the time someone who's ordained gets to the age of retirement, only 20% of those who were ordained are still actively serving a church when they retire. The biggest temptation, I could, I, I could line up some big names for you, have them stand right here on the chancel, names you might recognize. I could get a dozen or two dozen of men and women I know who would say their biggest temptation in ministry is to run away because they're afraid. But the Apostle Paul, 2,000 years ago, wrote to a young pastor named Timothy. In his second letter to his friend Tim, he said, for God has not given us a spirit of cowardice, a spirit of fear. God has given us rather a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. I love that text. For me, in the last year, it has been my favorite word. One I've read every morning now for almost 300 days. Love and power, though, those sound wonderful. Those are cool. But what about self-discipline? Well, that doesn't sound so cool. We don't, we don't sing songs to, you know... We have love will keep us together, and love is the only way, and self-discipline will, and this, this doesn't fit. However, it's self-discipline that gets us where we need to go towards something that matters. I mean, I'd like to believe, I'm sure every preacher would like to believe that, that he or she could stand up in the pulpit and preach a sermon that was just so amazing, so unbelievable, that hundreds, maybe tens of thousands, maybe millions, whatever, would, would follow, and a movement would be created, and unless your name is Martin Luther King, it's probably not going to happen. Instead, most of the change that takes place in the world that is orchestrated by the church begins in a quiet little meeting somewhere. Some little old ladies and some little old men, some youth and some middle-aged folks, married and single, divorced, sit around a table and they say, what if? Where's God calling us next? Back in 2007, we formed a visioning team back then. Same kind of structure, few folks around a table. Where's God calling us next? The next thing we did was we listened to the whole congregation in a series of holy conversations, sacred conversations. And, and one of the things that came out of that was this unbelievable desire to get focused in our outreach ministry. And the conclusion was, let's look at the Northeast. Let's do everything we can in the Northeast. And all kinds of connections now are happening between our congregation and the folks in the Northeast who we're partnering with and serving together with. And we're right on the edge of something new and wonderful, amazing and big uh, and unbelievable about to happen in the Northeast. And when did that start? It started at a table, maybe up on the third floor, with a candle being lit and a prayer offered. God, help us know where you're sending us next. Nine years later, yeah, nine years later, nine years it took. But it was a spirit of power and love and self-discipline that brought us to that moment. These principles that are true for the church are, are true in your life, too. 
They're, they're true for you and me. Right now, where does the light need to shine in you this morning, in us, in you and me? Where, where do we need to begin to reorient ourselves? What needs to be brought out into the light? What shadow needs to be revealed? What about your life is ready to shed the spirit of fear, cowardice, and replace it with the, with the power of love and, and self-discipline? You know, we, we have two more Sundays together after today. Next week, I'll give my State of the Church address, and then the final one will be a week later. Our final Sunday will be a week later. George Gordon, who's the Minister of Congregational Care Emeritus, he will be in the service. David Diebold will come back, and he'll celebrate with us on that day. Catherine Stark Corn is going to be in the service, along with Monica and all the rest of our clergy. Will, our current clergy will be in that service. It'll be a big, fun day. I, I hope you'll be here. It'll be kind of, kind of cool to see everybody on that day one more time. It's going to be great fun. <clears throat> but as you can imagine, right now, Julie and I are getting ready to sell our home. It's, it is on the market. It has been listed now for a week. And that means there's a lot of work to be done. If you've sold a house, you know. If you've ever downsized, we're downsizing to about half the size. There's a lot of stuff that needs to be done. But, boy, we've been cleaning and scrubbing and cleaning and getting ready and doing all kinds of things. In fact, our house was so clean a week ago after we were done working all day on it, I swear I could hear the house just singing. It was an amazing thing. But Thursday night, this last Thursday night, we got a text from our, our realtor saying, somebody wants to come by and see your house Friday morning at 9. Can you have it ready? Well, the house is pretty clean. Yeah, sure, we can have it ready. It was just a couple things I need, need to do to make sure it's ready for them. But I'll set my alarm for 5 o'clock. I'll get up early, get going. I wanted to write my all-church email on Friday morning. I want to finish these sermon notes, get all of that done. And so that's fine, no problem. Got up early, sat down in my office, started working on my notes, went over and turned the coffee pot on, went back and, and got back to that email. And then about 20 minutes later, I heard that sweet sound that little ringing, dinging sound of the coffee pot saying that the coffee is ready. And I got out of my office and I walked into the kitchen and there was coffee flowing down the front of the counter. And not just, not just coffee, but the grounds too. How come the ground, the grounds bubbled up out of the thing, whatever that's called, the craft. And just, there's grounds and there's coffee and it's going all over the floor and the front of the counters and that were so clean the night before. And it's just this gigantic mess in the kitchen. And I said, holy goodness. Uh, that's an actual quote. I'm sure it is. <laughs> Julie heard me upstairs. She came down. I was on my hands and knees. And I was just, you ever try to clean up wet coffee grounds? I, I mean, it's just, it just doesn't happen. I had a towel and some paper towels and the towel. And, and, and honestly, I was about ready to lose it. It's just oh, a lot of stuff all at once. And this mess. And then Julie said, you know, we always find a way. One month at a time. One day at a time. One minute at a time. One, one moment at a time. She was down right next to me. It's just one moment. We'll find a way. I started to say something. And she said, now clean up this mess. <laughs> And we got it clean. Sometimes life's a mess, isn't it? Sometimes the coffee pot breaks and just stuff goes everywhere. Sometimes your heart breaks. And stuff just goes everywhere. Sometimes you look at your kids. And you're just scared to death. That they'll never know how much you love them. 
sometimes you look at your mom and your dad and you're just overwhelmed that they've done so much to care for you. Sometimes you look at each other and the people in the pews and you just can't imagine how you can help, what you can do. Sometimes, though, it takes a spill or a mess for our lives to get reoriented, for our hearts to not only be broken but to be mended, for the light to finally shine, to give us direction, to help us see that God is not in heaven wagging some mean finger waiting for you to stop doing that and this other thing or else you're not going to get in. No, but that God is instead standing in the midst of the light with arms as wide as the universe saying, please, come this way for the light shines even in the dark. Amen.